Hello and welcome to Flaps. What? Welcome to Flaps. What's that, Elliot? Oh, Mark, stop banging and pay attention. What are you doing anyway? I'm building the podcast. You're building the podcast. Why are you building the podcast? Well, some people like to build their own aircraft, and I thought I'd see what it's like, you know. Right. Good. Well, welcome to Flaps. I'm Elliot. And I'm Mark. Elliot, would you fly an aircraft that I built? <laughs> no, I frankly wouldn't fly a kite that you built, especially looking at the state of that thing at the podcast. There have been these bits hanging off it. There's nails sticking out. Ow! See? Careful. Um, in this edition, in this handmade edition, uh, we find out more about home-built aircraft. We'll hear the amazing story of a man who, after a cancer scare, built his own aircraft. And what's more amazing, he actually flew it around the world 27,056 miles. Because I am given to stupid exaggerations, I thought that I wanted the ultimate cross-country flight. And the ultimate cross-country flight is to go right around the world. Our celebrity pilot this month also hand-makes something. It's his own cheese. What? It's Alex James, the former bass player and now cheese maker from Blur. I was like at 50 feet, cacking my pants, but I was like, I was seriously in trouble. I shouldn't have taken off. Their annual rally has just taken place, so we speak to the chairman of the Light Aircraft Association, where we saw the most amazing flying machine. This is not from outer space. <laughs> this is called the blended wing body, and uh, Boeing is also uh, on it. And Pablo Mason talks about the joys of helicopter flying. You could try and build him one of those. Celebrity pilot. Our celebrity pilot this month is another first for Flaps. Yeah, we've had a few rock stars now. Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, uh, Dan and Richard from The Feeling. So we needed a rock star with a little bit extra. And he's got a bit extra cheese. <laughs> I think we should point out at this point. <laughs> yes. Uh, he has a farm and he makes cheese. And he's got his own range of cheese that's about to go on sale in Asda. Very exciting. So it's our first bass playing, cheese making rock star, Alex James from Blur. Hello. Hello. So, I mean, how long have you been flying now? You, you, you've, been it, you've been at it for a while, haven't you? No, I, well, when Blur were touring all the time, I, I, um, I, you know, it was, it was the easiest way of getting to work. And D- Dave had this real heap of a Cessna. Like, a, it was a real, it was a real heap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we used to, like, jump into that and, you know, just that was how we got to work. This was Dave the drummer, wasn't it? And, Dave and it, the drummer, yeah. And it was just basically a, a means of getting around. What Didn't you like yeah. it so much that you bought his, pl- oh, he didn't have a spare plane and you bought it off him or something? Yeah, yeah. That was a nicer Grumman AA5. Yeah, that was a good little aeroplane. And then we, then I got a Bonanza. That was lovely. It had like big, like big cigar ashtrays. It was like a flying Bentley. That, those were the days, man. That was fantastic. So is he, um, is he Alex, a better pilot than you? Is there any competition in the band? Any, <laughs> any rivalry? Well, um, we both did instrument ratings. You know, we were flying a lot at one stage. But but um, I mean, I've got five kids now. I just haven't, I haven't got time. Well, it's time to, for a like, six-seater then, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when we were doing the last Blur album and recording it in in Morocco. We flew down to Marrakesh. That was an amazing trip. Was, was that the furthest we, you've flown? Yeah, yeah. We 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 bought all the maps. We were going to go to Timbuktu because you know when you're a pilot, everyone always says, "Oh, what's the furthest you've flown?" That's always the fir- that's always the first question. Mm. So it was. We thought the the correct answer to that would be Timbuktu. <laughs> so 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 that shut them up. So so um so we got all the maps and everything and it was it was from Pulis and and uh, it was yeah and we planned it all out but we did we didn't have time in the end but I, on the way down to um to Marrakesh we went via we routed via La Rochelle which was which was like going way out of the way but 
the cheese sandwiches at La Rochelle are like the benchmark cheese, like the benchmark cheese sandwich for the whole world. See, you really are obsessed with cheese, aren't you? Even even yeah. talking flying, we, we still get onto cheese sandwiches. It's just it's just bread and cheese. That's all it is. <laughs> and it's served to you by a really grumpy woman. Who's, you know, like how, you know how the French do that grumpy thing, like yeah, yeah. better than anybody, like much better than we do. <laughs> you know, there's a sort of charm and to you, it, isn't there? Although they're being rude, there's a charm to it. They're, they're, and you order it in French, and and they look at you like, <laughs> yeah, don't even try. And, and they say cheese sandwich. You want cheese sandwich? <laughs> you go, yeah, I want two. That was like my. That was always my requirement. Like even if we were going to Le Touquet, we'd 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 go via La Rochelle. <laughs> So you said in your book that um, mm-hmm. that when you learned to fly, that was that was just what you needed at that point in your life. Yeah. I mean, did it? How did it help you then? Well, you know, I, I think playing bass in a rock and roll band isn't isn't exactly the the uh, the, the, the the sort of position of high responsibility. You know, I, I think uh, it was. I just need. It was. It was. It was. A, it, was a, it was a time in my life when I sort of needed a challenge. I think really, it, it was. Uh, I loved everything about learning to fly. It was just the freedom that it gives you, and and the sort of I just I just loved it, and and and, not, not, and it was it was it was yeah. I think it, I'm not sure if it saved my life, but it, it certainly sort of helped me just sort of get away from the confu- You know, life was pretty confusing at that time. You you, you mentioned your uh, instrument rating, Alex. What made you want to do the instrument rating? Because I mean, you could have if you're a private pilot, the IMC would have made more sense, wouldn't it? Um, I went to, down to see a girl in Cornwall and and uh, and got stuck in Land's End for like a week in the fog and <laughs> just fogged in, just sitting at Land's End Airport waiting for it to clear, and and it finally lifted and I and I got and I flew into cloud. I was I was flying back along uh, along the coast and I got to Exeter. I was talking to Exeter, and the cloud base was coming down and down and I was over the sea. And the cloud base was actually below the the level of the cliffs. Mm. You know, I couldn't. I was like at fifty feet, cacking my pants, and and I, I can't remember if I called a pan or a mayday. I was like, I was seriously in trouble, and uh, and then I heard someone say that they were on top at at, uh, at two thousand feet. And you know, um, life expectancy in cloud is like two minutes. Yeah, or something. it's not very seconds, long, is it? Really? Yeah. 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 That's right. And and I did a quick calculate, five hundred foot a minute climb. Actually, two thousand feet. That's going to take me about two minutes. And I had there's there's nothing else for it. I couldn't it, the cloud cloud behind. It was fogging out behind me, and uh, so I just I just I had the AI and and <laughs> just pulled the column back and just <laughs> actually full power on, just went into this <laughs> just yanked it up there. And I suddenly popped out into gleaming sunshine on top. You know, it's like being born again. It's like, oh my I'm god! I'm sure, yes. After that, it's like that is like that was the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. You know, it's, it was and it was stupid. Well, it was partly stu- I shouldn't have taken off, but it was it it was the, the forecast was okay. You know, and that is like the weather's the most difficult thing. Of, oh, definitely. You know, yeah, of, yeah. Of, you know, even at the end of you know the uh, the, uh, the IR was was really it was really challenging. But the only thing I felt I didn't really understand at the end of it was weather. You know, it's it's, then nobody understands <laughs> no, no, that's very true. There's, there's always lessons in flying, aren't there? I mean, the IR is a very hard thing to do, but I guess you've got the motivation there, haven't you? Well, it was the way to. It was the way to. You know, it was. It was like it was how we got to work. You know, and and uh, so so it was, it was. It was. It was quite practical, really. And what's uh, what's harder, doing the IR or making fantastic cheese, Alex? Well, I think they both take every ounce of you know every, every ounce. <laughs> they t- both take everything you, you've got. You know, it, it, it's um. Doing anything that you you know when you've got a goal, you're trying to reach a goal. It sort of takes all your might, doesn't it? It's it's uh, but it's it's very satisfying. 
And you, you've got your own range of cheese coming out now uh, with some f- very interesting stuff in there. Uh, cheddar and tomato ketchup wedge. I'm quite looking forward a, to that. And a blanket. Well, the, the, yeah, I mean, I've, I was, I've been growing dozens of varieties of tomatoes on the farm like, and trying to using a fractional distillation column to try and extract the oh, elixir oh, of lost tomato. Me, lost me now. Whoa, I thought well, you know, flying was complicated. Like, doing fancy stuff with a, a food, very well-known food critic, uh, who I know, who shall remain nameless, just whispered to me that his guilty pleasure was was cheese and tomato ketchup sandwiches. And, oh. I, and I, I put the two together, and it's like, and actually, do you know what? I mean, I've, I've tried it on all kinds of snobs and Michelin-starred <laughs> chefs, and, and, you know, it, it gets the, without telling them what it is. Yeah, but will, the they, will they be serving up. it at Le Touquet, do you think? That would be my dream. It's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit more sort of fish-based, isn't it, though, that restaurant there? I do like that restaurant there. The actually, when we were thinking about this, aircraft and cheese go quite well together. You've got the Boeing 7 Brie 7, of course. Oh, dearie me. Uh, and helicopters, there's the uh, Baby Bell 206. <laughs> and, of course, your old favourite, the uh, the Beach Craft Cheese Sliced Bonanza. <laughs> Sorry, Alex, that's terrible. That's shocking. Isn't but it? if you think about it, you were always destined, Alex, for making cheese, because Blur's first hit was called There's No Other Way. Oh dear, stop it now, please, immediately. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Listen, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you for being our celebrity pilot, Alex James. Thank you, guys. Brilliant. Flaps Podcast, aka Radio 1,013 millibars. Later in the podcast, Pablo Mason's talking about his life in helicopters. Oh, blimey, a year it's taken for Pablo to get his chopper into flaps. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And also in this home-built special, we're talking uh, later to the chairman of the Light Aircraft Association. Mm. Now, um, a home-built aircraft can do everything a normal aircraft can do. In fact... Even more. It can go to extremes. It can go all the way around the world. Ten years ago, uh, a chap called Manuel Kairos declared his intention to fly solo around the world. He'd just beaten cancer, uh, and this recent brush with mortality buoyed him to take on a life-challenging goal. Uh, So five years ago, he managed to do this. He fulfilled his ultimate dream. Uh, He did it in a home-built aircraft. Chasing the Morning Sun is the book. He's just written about it, and it's great. Uh, And uh, he joins us in the studio now. Manuel Kairos. Have I said your name right? You have indeed, absolutely spot on. Where are you from, Manuel? I was born in Lisbon. In Portugal. Okay. So you're not just putting that accent on, it is genuine. It is genuine, yes. It hasn't washed off yet. <laughs> How long have you been over here for? Oh, only 41 years. Oh, okay. Only the 41 years. It'll go soon. I'm sure that accent will fade very, it will, very quickly. A few more months, so that'll be right. <laughs> so um, it's an amazing story. And you've, you've just published a book about it as well, Chasing the Morning Sun, which we'll come to in a minute. So you learned to fly back in 1990, and um, you, you, you've gone on this amazing journey around the world. What, what made you want to do that? Well, that was the ultimate... Uh, cross-country flight that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Across it, lots it, of countries. It's, it's as simple as that, yeah. Uh, one of my very first flights, once I had a license, was to go to the Isle of Wight, which implies crossing a little bit of sea, but it's sea nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I went to the Isle of Wight, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant to go from one bit of land to another bit of land without stopping in the middle. And then there was France, was a bit further on, and so on. And because I am given to stupid exaggerations, I thought that I wanted the ultimate cross-country flight. And the ultimate cross-country flight is to go right around the world. Uh, and that's as far as you can go without repeating yourself. You did this back in, when was it, 2006? Six. Yeah. So um, you, you, how long did it take you from the initial idea to actually setting off? The, the initial idea it was, um, I think, 1999. Um, that's when I actually sort of declared that I was going to do it. Uh, 
um, mainly because I was full of bravado and trying to outdo other people <laughs> on the plans for city adventures. Um, eventually, I bought the aero, this aeroplane that I wanted to do in 2002, the end of 2002. Um, and that's when it really started the real work of nuts and bolts and bureaucracy and uh, paperwork and so on. And it was uh, an RV6, wasn't an it? An RV6, a Vans RV6. Which you bought in and then you presumably did a lot of modification to it because that couldn't fly around the world in its, in its normal state, could it? Uh, it wouldn't have the range that I needed, yeah. uh, so I needed to increase the range, but also I had to make it as perfect as possible, and it had a few faults that uh, were a bit hair-raising. Hang yes. on, a few faults? What, <laughs> what were these? Because normally faults in an aircraft you don't find till you're in the air. Uh, well, as long as you find it in the air and stay there, it's not so bad. It's I easy. suppose so, yes. You drop out of it, <laughs> yeah. that's the problem. That's not yeah. so clever, is it? What were these faults? Tell me, I'm interested. Uh, well, the, the worst fault uh, was uh, a wing that was twisted. A wing that was twisted, a twisted right? wing? Okay, yeah. How did you yes. find, how did you discover that then? Well, initially, by flying, it had a horrendous stall, and it just flicked back on on its back. Uh, as and it and that happened to you? Uh, well, every time it stalled, yeah. You had a wing drop, and it went like... like yeah, right around, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a fault. Which uh, wing, a, wing in op. <laughs> attention, attention grabbing. I'm yeah. sure it is, yes. Um, and I asked a few people about this thing, and they said, oh, yes, it can have a bit of a stall, but... Uh, bit of I, a stall. I, and I thought a bit of a stall was probably sort of... Yeah. Does, uh, does the stall warner in a plane that does that sound like this? <laughs> that's the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously, the range is an issue, isn't it? I mean, so... Because I've seen the pictures in your book, and it looks to me that basically there's the pilot seat, and then there's where the other seat would be is just a whacking great tank. Is that is that how it is? Two tanks actually. Two yeah. tanks. <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose it is. Yeah, uh, I was sharing the cockpit with uh, 240 liters of rav gas. So you set off. You left from Gloucester, didn't you? That's where Indeed, you, that's where yeah. you fly from. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know the route. I mean, how how does one go around the world in a relatively small plane? Because you know, I mean, you know, okay, hopping over to Europe's okay, and then you can go across land for that bit. But then, and it's actually you can sort of go around the world. It's just the Atlantic that's the big bit, isn't it? That's the huge, scary bit of water. Uh, it's scary from from uh, from uh, the, a British sort of perspective. Uh, however, there's much bigger ocean to cross. And actually, the Atlantic was the smallest of, uh, of really? the oceans. Indeed, yeah, it was actually it was the third. Actually, uh, the the biggest by far is the Pacific. Uh, the Pacific is huge. The Pacific, if you look at a globe from uh, the other end of the world, it's all blue, and uh, if you and all you can see is a little bits of land on sides. To put it into perspective, the, the Pacific is bigger than all the land masses put together. Wow. Even if you count Australia twice, really? Wow, you're still living that little. So, island. so how do you cross an enormous body of water? I mean, I guess you, what do you, you have to find islands that you can. Indeed, yeah, 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 yeah. Island hopping, but but still big hops. Will these islands have fuel on them? What do you do with this? Um, some of them did, some of them didn't, uh, and uh, the one that didn't, I had to place fuel there by ship. You had to get no, actually the fuel taken yeah, in. I had to, to get the fuel taken in, yeah. And that's a flight plan and a half, isn't it, really? I mean, that's, how, how, much, how much flight planning did it take? I mean, how many, I mean, how many hours, how many years did it take to plan it? In, in the just whole thing, I suppose, took 
best part of four years, yeah, all, all told, yeah. And it, it was a lot of work in many directions. And how do you even go about planning it? Where do you start? Where's the, what, what's the starting thing? What's the first thing you have to do? The weather, I guess, isn't it? Work out even what time of year to go. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, the weather is a big, big, big uh, factor, of course, because uh, as you're going round, and uh, both in latitude and longitude, you come across many, many different things, and the weather was a huge, huge planning exercise. What was the rough route then? Just, just give us a few places the on roughly the roughly was to go to southern Europe, uh-huh. touching Africa, uh, Middle East to Sri Lanka, across the Indian Ocean to Malaysia, Philippines, island hop across the Pacific which is sort of uh, big hops, Hmm. Um, Guam, uh, Bonriki, uh, Hawaii, California, across the States, and then across... uh, And back home. uh, Across the Atlantic, and that's it. So how long did it take? How long was the the whole round-the-world trip? I mean, you've just got back, have you? It's 2011 now, (laughs) 2006. Not bad. It was a little bit shorter than that, actually, just. It was 39 days. 39 days? Indeed, yeah. That's yeah. incredible. It takes us longer than that to get a podcast out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is that a record? Because uh, you've, re- you've set yeah. some records, uh, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, that, that is uh, the British record for up to 1,000 kilograms takeoff weight. Yeah. So how many records? Because you set several, didn't you, on this trip. What records do you currently hold? I hold, I think, seven uh, world records. Now, you went to 27,056 miles. Uh, yes. Is that correct? And I'm, tr- I'm trying to work out, I've got my whiz wheel somewhere. How much fuel do you, how much fuel do you use to do this? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> how much did it cost? Do you, can you remember? Believe it or not, and I know it is hard to believe, but I never added it up. Really? Um, mainly because I didn't want to upset myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that is absolutely true. And, and did you get sponsorship? Were you sponsored? I had a little sponsorship, yes. There were some very generous people that sponsored me. There were a few companies that sponsored me. And that t- took some of the pain out of it. But uh, there was only a small fraction of the overall thing. And you did it for charity, didn't you? It was for, uh, it was for cancer charity. It was right? trying to, to raise both money and uh, awareness for cancer research. Was it scary? I mean, there must have been some scary moments. Yeah, was oh, there yeah. a point when you thought, why am I doing this? Um, funnily enough, the scariest part was on the ground. Really? Uh, it was the anticipation, the anxiety of anticipation, uh, mainly sort of for the longest leg. Uh, the, long, the longest leg was going to be about two and a half thousand miles. Hmm. Uh, all over the sea. Your logbook must look fantastic. <laughs> yes. It, it was quite good, actually. Yeah, I've got one of those little logbooks that's 13 entries a page. And uh, in that first page of that journey, I think I, 108 hours in one page. Okay. And if, if anyone's listening to this thinking, yeah, I'd like to have a go at that, have you got any words of wisdom for them? Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I am sort of always quite open to, to advise people on uh, the various things that they need to, and I have done so in several occasions. Yeah, and it was a good sure. choice of aircraft? The, the RV-6 was a, was a good, it was good, a good yeah. thing it, to do it? It was very good, yeah. yeah. Once you sorted the twisted wing out, obviously. Uh, once it was sorted out, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you, now, the book you've written, I mean, if, if people want to read this, and it is a cracking book, it's um, Chasing the Morning Sun, which is a, a great name. Why, why did you decide to call it that? Um, a friend of mine actually sort of came up both with the title and the logo because the logo sort of expresses the the title. 
And uh, the, that's the two things. One was I was going east, so it's the morning sun, ah, the rising yes. sun, uh, and gives that uh, picture uh, of going into the sun, to the new sun. There was also the thing about the cancer thing, that um, it was trying to go to a new era where cancer can be controlled better than it is now and uh, not um, create so much havoc with so many people. And we ought to spell your name in case people try to search for it on the internet because it's not the most obvious thing to, to spell, is it, being, being Portuguese. Obvious, so it's no. Manuel, as in, well, Manuel. And then uh, Kairos, Q-U-E-I-R-O-Z, or Elliot will do it phonetically for us. Oh, here we go then. Uh, Quebec Uniform Echo India uh, Romeo Oscar Zulu. Well done, Elliot. Thank well you done. very much. Thank hey. you. Hey. <laughs> thank you ever so much for coming in. No, thank you. And, my, my pleasure. Yeah, and, thank uh, you for asking. Yeah, if, uh, if people would like to read it, it's called Chasing the Morning Sun uh, by Manuel Kairos, a great adventurer, one of only a few people who've ever done it. And uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's very good. Thanks for joining on the Flaps podcast. Thank you. It's Mason's Minute. I was asked recently, what's it like to fly a helicopter? And how do you compare flying a helicopter with fixed-wing flying? I have flown about 2,500 hours rotary, ranging from the Westland Whirlwind, which was a single-engined troop-carrying helicopter, and the heaviest aeroplane I flew was the Westland Wessex Mark II, which could carry up to a dozen troops or about four and a half thousand pounds of uh, freight. It was a very versatile aeroplane. And of course, my involvement in it was through the mid to late 70s and principally operations in Northern Ireland in support of the army. The very exciting times operationally and really quite demanding times physically. The Wessex was due to be replaced by the Boeing Vertol Chinook, hardly a replacement because I think the Chinook can lift about 28,000 pounds, can lift its own weight. But there was a Boeing Vertol representative who was talking to the pilots about the aeroplane and how good it was going to be to fly. And I asked him how the aeroplane would handle if it suffered an engine failure at slow speed and high all-up weight. And this wonderful Texan droll came across and said, Sir, yes, sir, the other engine will quickly take you to the scene of the incident. So it was always worth thinking that an engine failure, even with a twin-engined helicopter, was something that needed to be dealt with immediately. No time to think the reactions during such a mechanical failure had to be so ingrained that you did them almost before you thought of them. And then, of course, the aeroplane would not plummet, but uh, it would have a pretty restricted uh, forward flight as you auto-rotate it towards the ground. And, of course, the idea was that you use the momentum of the aeroplane, the weight of the aeroplane, to keep the rotor turning, to keep you flying, as it were, albeit towards the ground. And then in those last moments as you approach the ground, then you could pitch up and raise the collective lever and use what was left of the energy in the main rotor to uh, cushion the um, touchdown. And in fact, during my uh, Wessex helicopter training, part of the operational conversion was to carry out uh, three complete engine-out landings. And once you had disconnected the main rotor from the engines, there was no going back. You would do exactly during that 
practice as you would do, hopefully not, with a failure or a catastrophic failure in the aeroplane. Amazingly robust. What else is it like to fly helicopters? Well, of course, throughout the 70s, when I was flying them, we were doing a real job of work in Northern Ireland. Nothing moved on the ground, particularly in South Armagh, unless it was transported by air. We took the food into the garrisons and we took the rubbish out. It was as simple as that. I think for the, for the light aircraft flyer, the simple thing I can say is that um, helicopters are obviously far more expensive than light aircraft, so it's only going to be the rich gits that uh, get their hands on the helicopters anyway. And the sort of things you're going to fly are going to be the Robinson 22 or the 44. You may get onto a Jet Ranger. And these things are pretty expensive to operate hour by hour. I think the maintenance ratio is about five times more than fixed wing. So that's the first restriction, that of cost. In terms of enjoyment, I would say that in my experience of talking to light general aviators, the vast majority who move on to helicopters because they can afford it or it's something they're desperate to do, much prefer it. And I think the pure skills required to fly the aeroplane are probably greater than those required to fly a fixed wing. People said, well, how do you hover a helicopter? And the answer is you use your left hand to pat your head very, very lightly, whilst at the same time using your right hand to make a rotating movement in front of your stomach. It takes a while, but once you can do it, you can do it. And can you ever remember how you didn't do it? Answer is no. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Thank you, Pablo Mason. Oh, will you stop that banging, Mark, please? I've told you before. What? I'm still building the podcast. That's a podcast. Yes. It looks more like a Wendy house. You cheeky sod. Um, it, it's kind of a home-built theme to Flaps this month, and there is an organisation that represents home and amateur-built aircraft, among other things. Uh, and their rally at Sywell has just taken place too, so let's speak to the chairman of the Light Aircraft Association, Roger Hopkinson. It's a beautiful day. We've picked a fantastic day to come, and uh, it's fantastic. You can't ask for better than this, can you? Yeah, we've uh, got, sort of got it right this time, haven't we? Did I you book the got, weather? Yeah, what we did, we got all our members to face east <laughs> and pray simultaneously, and they had to hold umbrellas at the same time, and, you know, it ends up like this. Do it every year. Well, it works very yeah, well. Absolutely. Don't we, stop we, what we you're really, doing. We really do recommend this methodology <laughs> to most people. <laughs> if uh, we, Well, we've never been. Uh, Flaps Podcast has never been before. What, what, what's in store for us? What can we look forward well, to? Well, we've got, at the moment, I think, 900 aeroplanes booked in. Um, so hopefully we're going to have 900 aeroplanes over the period of the next two days, which is uh, quite a good number. We've had more than that in previous rallies. Rallies have been part of what was a popular flying association and the LAA, oh, almost since its initiation. It's the, the gathering of the clans, if you like. Um, so we get uh, all our struts coming, we get people to show off yeah, show off their aeroplanes quite rightly because there's some fantastic aircraft here. There's many we haven't seen before because we, after all we get about 120 new aircraft added to the fleet every year. And several of those are one-off, very unique types. Yeah, well, God, they're, trying, they're trying hard with that uh, <laughs> yeah. Fokker triplane over there. I mean, that just that noise. It, it sounds so, amazing, it, doesn't it? Yeah, but it highlights the massive difference in, in what we do, doesn't it? I mean, you've got some really fast hot ships here. You've got um, a replica Fokker triplane. Uh, replica Mustang over there. 
Joe Dell just uh, going out. Um, yeah. Are we likely to see anything really unusual? Because uh, we spoke to you once before on the podcast and you said that there are guys who come in who, who literally design it on a scrap of paper and, and build it. So well, think, will we see any of those? Yes, you will find various, you know, you, you've got to go around and see them really, but there are some really very unusual aeroplanes here you won't see often actually. And a beer festival. Well, it's just fortuitous that the beer festival's here, and they've got 22 beers, I understand. So I'm hoping that you're going to help me work our way through all of Well, those. we'll have a go, yeah, yeah. yeah. we've got to do these we'll, things. We'll, we'll do all the we? aircraft first, and yeah, then we'll do the beers right. afterwards. Yeah, that's right. And Abs- we're not flying home, by the way. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> or driving, we're just well, going to stay it's here. Well, it's a two-day event. Uh, this is Friday. Um, I have to say, this is quite good for a Friday, a very good turnout, and it really bodes quite well for tomorrow, which the weather's okay as well, so... You know, people should come and enjoy this. I mean, it's it's the life of the LAA. I spoke about before. Flaps. We've made a special LAA version of Flaps, which is available now from flapspodcast.com. And it's a bit different to normal. It's aimed at the community of flyers who make up the Light Aircraft Association. There's no celebrity pilots, no Pablo Mason, just very enthusiastic aviators who we were delighted to meet, actually, and also some bonkers planes. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, really bonkers planes. While we were there, uh, we saw the most incredible aircraft flying. You've got to see this to believe it. Have a look at the pictures on our site. Um, When we say it looks like a UFO crossed with a Mini Cooper, that would be about it, really. So, take a listen to this. Um, The strangest plane I've seen ever has just landed at Sywell, and uh, we've grabbed the pilot literally out of the plane. What's your name, sir? I'm uh, Bart. Welcome to Sywell. Thank you. What is this? (laughs) Is this... This this is not from outer space. (laughs) Well, it, it's, uh, let me describe it, because obviously, you know, this, it doesn't really work uh, just in, in audio, but it is literally a small flying wing, isn't it? It's like a small delta wing. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> with a delta wing. With a fin at the back. Yeah. And did you, you, presumably you built this? I built it myself, yes. Uh, and I, I'm guessing it's not a kit. You can't get these in kit form, so this is no. completely from scratch yeah. from your no. slightly crazy mind, I'd imagine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. What, what, why? Why did you build this? Well, this is called the blended wing body. And... Uh, Boeing is also uh, on it for uh, uh, designing a blended wing uh, body. So what, what's it like to fly? It, it's 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 very very easy to fly. Yes. Yeah. Stable and and fast. It's. Uh, it does. It, what speed does it land at? Uh, it, it settles down at, at about 60 miles. No, it's uh, it's very good. And how long did it take to build? About about five years. It really. Took me about five years. And uh, what's the. Uh, what was the hardest thing about building this and designing it? To, uh, to get it all certified. Yeah, that's because of course it's got to be certified. What, uh, what, what did they say when they saw it? Uh, at first they didn't believe that it would fly. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I made an appointment with them that I uh, should uh, try the aircraft on the long runway, making, making hops and the hops make it, making uh, every time a bit Higher and so a little further. bit like the Wright brothers back at the very beginning yeah, of yeah. flight. Yeah. So you, in fact, the, the rollout of this aircraft was exactly 100 years after the first motorized flight. It's amazing. Yeah. It, it's uh, and where did you fly from? From uh, Belgium. From Belgium. So you, yeah. have you flown in here from Belgium today? Yeah. How long is it taking you to get here? Well, we had to, to pass uh, Calais to do customs. Uh-huh. But uh, to, to Calais was uh, one hour 15 minutes. And to here was also one hour, 15 minutes, I guess. I wonder how many UFO reports there have been for, for your aircraft. Well, there's a UFO reporting point uh, in, 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 in my country, country yeah. in Belgium. And uh, if they got a UFO reported, first thing they do is uh, call me <laughs> and, and, 
in, in half of the time. It, it is it you. Was, it was <laughs> me, yeah. So you're a troublemaker then, really? <laughs> Not on purpose. Well, we better let you go and uh, refresh and yeah. do everything you have to do after a long flight. Okay, thank uh, you. But it's great to speak to you and welcome to Sawal and thanks for bringing this incredible plane. It's an amazing thing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, what an atmosphere. I love a party with an international standard atmosphere. Finally, a bit more news for you. Um, I hate to tell you, but we've been cheating on you. Uh, sorry, uh, we've been making other podcasts behind your back. Sorry about that, but it was the CAA. And they are all sort of big and handsome. Uh, cast your mind back to April's flaps. We were talking to the CAA about their newly announced London 2012 Olympic airspace restrictions. Uh, well, they've changed a bit since then, and we've been working with the CAA on a special podcast called Airspace to bring you the details of the changes and how flying next summer will be affected. There's more information on our site at flapspodcast.com and also at the Airspace Safety Initiative at airspacesafety.com forward slash Olympics. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and uh, you can also sign up for our mailing list. That's at flapspodcast.com. Or you can subscribe on iTunes. All you need to do is search for Flaps Podcast. Dead easy, that. It downloads itself. And as always, it's completely free. Thanks for listening. See you next month. It's time for us to Foxtrot Oscar. Thanks for listening to Flaps. <laughs>